0: Ladies and gentlemen welcome to this week's edition of the Daily Delphi. Today we are joined by Dr Kerry Phelan, lecturer at Maynooth University and perhaps uh, more impressively able to deal with me an ancient Greek course for five days Um, and she is going to talk to us about Demosthenes. Firstly how are you Dr Phelan?
1: I'm good thank you, Um, really good. So at the start of a new academic term I'm very busy with preparations for Greek classes at the minute which is just what I love I absolutely love getting set, stuck into text with my students um, so yeah I'm really good at the minute and just kind of looking forward to what a new semester brings regardless of, of what's going on with the COVID pandemic moving Greek online and becoming more interactive that's the challenge and it's one that I'm really enjoying at the minute so yeah looking forward to to our our conversation now so thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Oh, no, pleasure's all mine. That, that optimism is definitely welcomed. <laughs> so, Demosthenes, to start, who was he?
1: So, Demosthenes is, well, he's considered one of the greatest orators of all time, if not the greatest. I would strongly argue that he would be the greatest. Um, he was somebody who wrote um, a number of different speeches, um, there's an essay and a collection of letters under his name. Um, But he was somebody who was a master of Attic prose. He could vary his style of writing depending on his purpose, whether it's political or whether it was for a a civil suit or a criminal suit. Um, But I particularly admire him as somebody who can give a character portrayal um, and really make it convincing and believable for his audience. And so it's not just his logical arguments that he can create, but how he he varies his style to suit whatever purpose he had. So he was a contemporary of Plato and Aristotle, um, but I guess that most people would know him as being um, the the face of the opposition against Philip of Macedon and later Alexander the Great. So that's usually how most people come to hear Demosthenes' name um, first and foremost. Whereas I kind of flip the coin on that. I'm more interested in the the social and the cultural realities of classical Athens and what was going on during Demosthenes' lifetime. That's the period Um, that I'm most fascinated by. So I mentioned that he has two different styles of oratory. He has his forensic speeches, which we call them, uh, in which he's either writing for himself or for a client um, to deliver a speech before law court. Um, So these cover a variety of different civil cases and even criminal cases as we would uh, classify them now. Um, And then he also has his deliberative orations, which are his political speeches, the ones which he wrote um, to convince the Athenian audience to either complete an action or to not complete an action, um, usually before the Athenian assembly. So it's in the the political orations that we actually get to know Demosthenes more so um, and actually hear his own opinions um, really clearly. So generally speaking, I said there was about 60 um, orations under his name um, most of the political ones are authentic, there's been plenty of studies done on this, uh, but a number of the um, forensic speeches uh, we now know, some of them have now been attributed to a different writer who was working at the time, a man called Apollodorus. Um, so some of those, we, even though they're still under Demosthenes' corpus under his name, uh, we do know that some of them were actually written by somebody else as well. So there's been plenty of research done on this and kind of studies of um, his language and his style in order to be able to, to figure out which ones are real Demosthenes and which ones aren't. So it's a fascinating area, um, this whole um, category of oratory and something which I, I really enjoy myself.
0: Interesting. Um, There are all all sorts of fabulous stories about him. Uh, I think it's particularly Plutarch writes of all the bizarre stuff he'd do to train himself up from shaving half his head. So he had to remain underground and study to putting pebbles in his mouth. Um, How is it, do you think? And again, I say this at the risk of insulting your particular field, which is definitely not what I want to do, um, that his name, perhaps outside of the classical sphere, hasn't been put in the same league as the likes of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates in terms of popular history?
1: Well, certainly from ancient commentators, he was highly regarded. Um, he seems to have have kind of faded a bit into the background with regard to his connection to to Philip and Alexander, I believe. Um, so the fact that he opposed Philip II and later Alexander and kind of the Macedonian um, infraction onto to Greek freedom, Um, even though he was right, of course he was right. Um, He seems to have kind of got lost a little bit in the background for um, later uh, commentators. Um, But certainly in the ancient uh, world itself, he was very highly regarded. So as you mentioned, we have Cicero and Plutarch. Um, Cicero um, himself was somebody who really um, tried to understand what Demosthenes was doing and even tried to copy, uh, some would say as well. Plutarch Dionysius of Halicarnassus was another um, fan of Demosthenes and he's wrote um, a piece or a text all about Demosthenes' writing and his style. So he certainly has a reputation in the ancient world. We know that even after Demosthenes' death, when the Athenian democracy was restored, you know, the Athenians voted to put up a statue um, to Demosthenes and to celebrate um, what he had tried to do by opposing Philip and Alexander. Um, But really, I think he's, he's faded into the background a little bit too much because of what came with the rise of the Hellenistic kingdoms. um, And certainly um, that had an impact on his later reputation. Um, But uh, as you mentioned, you know, there's some fantastic stories when you you read some of the biographies about um, Demosthenes, particularly with regard to how he trained and how dedicated he was to his craft. And there's some fantastic anecdotes out there um, and that really gives an insight perhaps into what his character might have been like and how determined he was we see that brought brought to fruition in his political speeches the fact that he he continued to oppose philip regardless of um his own situation um and continued to to fight for athenian freedom uh, right up until the end um until his his death in 322 he was still kind of Fighting then um, to to kind of get his point across and to say you know this is this is going to impact our everyday lives we we really need to to stand up against um, these these Macedonians who are coming in to take our political freedom away um, and I especially like his dramatic ending um, that's one of my favourite stories um, where we have the the legend coming to us that he he commits suicide um, with ink um with his pen um, he has poison concealed within his reed pen um and he he finally kind of has the last laugh over the macedonians in one way of looking at it by refusing to allow them to execute him um so he he commits suicide rather than be taken captive so i find that really interesting about him how determined he was and that fits into the whole um biography that plato um, that Sorry, Plutarch and um, Cicero had and give us the the stories about how um, determined and how he persevered. So I I really find those anecdotes fascinating in terms of of giving us an insight into what might have been the true character of Demosthenes, the orator.
0: Indeed, I suppose... uh... In a more, well, less tangible way, his legacy is preserved in his, I believe he was famed for his use of ad hominem and attacks on the person rather than the argument, which um, is still a tactic used by Mm -hmm. many politicians today, some better than others. Um, (laughs) We'll come back to the death later because it's quite interesting. Well, Mm -hmm. very interesting. But in particular, I believe you wanted to talk about the very famous funeral oration Now, what is the context to this speech?
1: For the funeral oration, um, so Demosthenes has um, a variety. I mean, he he writes um, his political speeches, he has his forensic speeches, and then he finally has um, the letters and a funeral oration under his name as well. So in order, this is something that other writers were doing at the time in order to, um, we saw this with Thucydides and Pericles' funeral oration. This is something to celebrate um, your war dead, to celebrate and to promote your state as much as possible. Um, So since Demosthenes is is somebody who's attempting to fight on behalf of Athenian freedom, this is something that's really important for him Um, and a way to get his own ideas and his own message across. And to strengthen his case and to say, um, this is what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting on behalf of you, you Athenian people. So listen to this message, listen to the celebration of those who've sacrificed for our city. Um, so he, he, it, it, it falls under a category of um, like a, a eulogizing the war dead, but also promoting um, your state and promoting who you are as a people as well and trying to rally um, this Athenian spirit and this um, important sense of state and community, which is the foundation stone really of the Athenian democracy. So given what Demosthenes has witnessed in his lifetime, so he was born sometime in the 380s, sometime around 384. He dies around 322 BC. So the, the things that he's seen and the effects and the impact on democracy are incredibly important to him. Um, and how he understands the threats, the political threats to the stability of the democracy and what could happen if they were to relinquish control to an outside force or indeed to another Greek force. He's very much aware of um, how different his world would look without democracy being part of it. So he's very protective of that, and that, that comes really through into the, the funeral oration. And.
0: Um. What does the speech itself tell us about, reading really far into it, what, what, what does it tell us about the society that it was a product of?
1: Well, for us, um, we know so much about this period and, and the changes that were happening. Um, citizenship is, is an area that I have focused my research on. Um, one speech that I'm writing my current book on at the minute um, is Demosthenes is against Eubolides." And this is a forensic speech, but it deals with this idea of citizenship and how protective the Athenians were of their citizenship rights in everyday life. So this idea then that um, the Athenians didn't want foreigners usurping citizen rights is very close to the political message that Demosthenes was trying to get through in his deliberative orations with trying to protect um, Athenian status um, as a separate um, identity within kind of the the wider um, Hellenic world, so the idea of citizenship going back to that again it 's incredibly important belonging to this state and having the rights and responsibilities of that state and being very um, very wary of allowing outsiders to come in and to to have a, a share themselves. Demosthenes, um, when he wrote a, the Against Eubulides speech, this was sometime around 346, 345 BC, so really kind of at the, as his own political career was taking off, yet he still chose to, to write this speech, um, Demosthenes 57, for a client to deliver in court. At about this time, he was probably charging quite a high fee for his services as a logographer. He was probably um, charging a fee that a man, an Athenian man of, of modest means, probably couldn't afford. So when we look at his his cases that he he chooses, and he continues his forensic speeches right up until the 320s. When we look at the ones that he's choosing to, to participate in on behalf of a client, this one might be very interesting because the speaker in question is is trying to convince the jury via Demosthenes um, that he doesn't have much money at all. Um, so it's it, 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 it's interesting to think why Demosthenes would have got involved with this. And I think for my part, at least, and the the, the stance I'm taking in my own research, how important citizenship was to Demosthenes himself um, and how he viewed the the whole element as being, um, part and parcel of protecting the democracy as a whole. There's also an interesting take as well that I'm, I'm kind of still working out in my head, um, that there's been some claims against Demosthenes' maternal grandmother, um, certainly by Iskenes, um, his, his famous opposition in the Athenian assembly, um, that Demosthenes' maternal grandmother might have been of Scythian blood. So this would have been absolutely fine with regard to Athenian law if Demosthenes' mother had been born before 403 B.C. Um, when a law was introduced or reintroduced to protect citizenship and limit it to, um, to, limit it to people born of two Athenian parents. Um, so the fact that this comes into, into force in 403 again reiterates how incredibly protective Athenians are of their, their rights. And these are the very people that Demosthenes is trying to persuade when he stands before the assembly and says, we shouldn't just be protecting our citizenship rights from usurpation from outsiders and foreigners, but we also need to protect our entire state from the encroaching Macedonians as well. So it all connects back. Being a good citizen um, and having these rights and responsibilities is all about protecting democracy as well. So Demosthenes might have taken this particular case or at least I like to think he might have taken this particular case because he's facing slanders from Iskines about his own lineage and the fact that his mother might have um, been born to a Scythian woman as well. So he's, he, he knows firsthand um, how important it is to to defend yourself and to defend your state and I think all of this is part of the the Demosthenes character that we have coming to to fore in the later biographies as well of Plutarch and of Cicero and Dionysius.
0: Now, you look at uh, Pericles. There is a person who championed Athenian citizenship whilst having, well, being rather controversial in his private life with Aspasius, how we say. Did Demosthenes uphold the beliefs that he championed?
1: It's interesting because we don't know too much about his private life. Um... We, we get anecdotes again from the, the biographers that he was very severe um, and very um, dedicated to his craft, but we don't know too much about his own personal life. Um, so it, it's in, incredibly important um, that we, we don't kind of jump to conclusions about him as well. But the reputation that he had, um, I mean, if we, if we even look to his critics, if we look to what Eastonese says about him, um, it, it's very it's very difficult to to get down to what was going on in Demosthenes' personal life and the fact that he he did keep this very much separate and he was obviously somebody who um, was very busy with his own um, profession. So as I mentioned already that he's, his kind of political uh, career really takes off in the 350s. And even at the height of that, even when he's so occupied by um, what was going on with, with Philip and Alexander later, uh, he still continues to write for clients right up until the 320s. So this must have been time consuming to, to be writing speeches. And if we have 60, um, some of them are authentic, as I said, but if we have 60 speeches that survive. That's a significant corpus that come under his name. These speeches would have been published after they were delivered uh, in order to, to build your reputation as a politician, but also to build your reputation as a logographer as well, somebody who's writing speeches. So he seems to have been incredibly busy in what he was doing, and certainly that might have impacted in the fact that uh, we don't know too much about his private life. Maybe he, he didn't have um, something that was um, as important to him. I think there's some truth in the, the fact that when Demosthenes came of age, when he um, turned 18, he had to face a rather important fight against his guardians in order to recover in his inheritance. So even from a very young age, he, he had to, to train in rhetoric. He had to, to follow his path in, in understanding how to persuade audiences, um, not just with his, his training, with his apparatus and his pebbles in his mouth, um, but he gives it a lot of time very early on because he has to recover the inheritance that his three guardians have been squandering away while he was young. Demosthenes' father died when he was about seven or eight years old. So these three guardians, two of which are his uncles, um, he spends the first three years after he comes of age battling within court to recover what was left of his inheritance and even to take uh, what property they had as well. So he's somebody who, who seems right up from the offset as just kind of having that work ethos and really wanting to, to push that side of his life. Um, and that's incredibly important, I think, in terms of his character, um, we don't know too much about that that personal side of his life, and whether we can compare what was going on with um, kind of what had happened before with Pericles and Aspasia. But there is something that I think is important there with with Cleo Bully, his mother, um, and the attacks that Aeschines is, is pushing on him as being somebody who who is, is weak and effeminate, um, but also somebody who might have um, kind of Scythian blood in him. Um, he ha- He always seems to have this kind of cross to bear in this fight to to overcome these issues, and I think that 's why he 's just completely driven towards his his political work and his work as a speechwriter as well. This seems to to consume him even from the the orations that we do know are genuine from Demosthenes. The time and effort that it must have taken to to style these speeches and to to really kind of make them as persuasive as possible for the political arena, arena and as different as they are for his individual clients it's it's really remarkable um, and it it really shows that he is a master of of prose and being able to to style um, a speech to suit a particular purpose on any given day um, that's why i would argue quite strongly that he is the greatest of orators. but i know there would be people who, out there who disagree with me
0: Interesting. Now, one of the other aspects that really comes out of the funeral that you've mentioned is a reflection of uh, women's place in the Athenian society. And perhaps how the image that we are given, or at least the impressions we are given from the speech, differ perhaps from what some Athenian historians might want us to believe. What, were your, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So for um, for Demosthenes, I, I know i 've mentioned his mother quite a bit there, um, but in particular, what I found interesting, and what I did with my master 's thesis originally um, was I was looking at how women are portrayed in kind of um, oratory in general um, and how um, how it differs to the usual or the ideal. Um, Perception of women that might be portrayed in a, in a Greek textbook, um, a civilization textbook. Um, so, the ideal that Thucydides would have us believe, Xenophon would have us believe, um, some of the big kind of intellectual writers of the classical period would be that ideally women were kept at home, um, safe, secure, um, protected uh, from outside, uh, the outside world in general, but protected from themselves as well because they had insatiable sexual appetites. Um, And I was really interested to think that with the frequency with which the Athenians went to war, um, that couldn't possibly have been the actual reality um, that these women lived when their, their menfolk were gone, their husbands were gone, their brothers were gone. So again, going back to Demosthenes 57, this speech was incredibly illuminating in revealing that. Athenian women were actively working in the marketplace. They were market traders. They were crafting at their looms and selling their goods. Um, They were selling ribbons. So the speaker that he's writing for in 346 BC is a man who's been disfranchised, who's been ejected from citizenship um, because he's, he's had two accusations laid against him. His father speaks with a foreign accent. Um, and his mother works in the the marketplace. She served first as a wet nurse, and then later she was selling ribbons. Um, So this speech is incredibly interesting because the speaker, Demosthenes, has the speaker say, look, Athenian jury, we we know of so many women who are out there right now, and I could name some of them if you want, but I'm not going to, Um, but we know of so many women who are out there right now who are actively working, supporting the economy, supporting their families, Um, And this is an everyday reality. This isn't something that you can throw as an accusation back at me that my mother's any different from those Athenian women. So this isn't talking about prostitution. This was talking about Athenian women who had to essentially keep the state going, who had to keep food in their their children's mouths and support the family. Um, So I use that speech so much, and that's now why I'm I'm turning this into a textbook um, for Greek study. Uh, because it reveals so much, not just about the citizenship ideas and how um, how flimsy um, the accusations could be to have somebody ejected. I mean, somebody's dad spoke with a foreign accent. Um, but also how important that is to, to show the, the real social conditions of what was going on during the classical period, what was happening on the streets in Athens. And I think there's a fantastic parallel to to join that with what we saw in kind of World War I, World War II in particular, when women went out to factories, when women had to to partake as land girls, to to get involved with with keeping the war effort running, but also keeping the state running and keeping themselves um, fed and alive. So I find that fascinating and that's something that's incredibly important to reverse this idea of Athenian women continually veiled, kept behind locked doors as some sort of kind of trophy. Of course, that was real, um, but that was only possible for women of some means. You had to be part of the rich and the elite to keep that ideal maintained. The lower societies, regular Athenian women, um, women like our speaker's mother in Demosthenes 57, who had several young kids to feed she had to go out work as a wet nurse herself and sell ribbons in order to support her family while her husband was away serving the Athenian state all of this is incredibly important connecting the the reality of citizenship and the ideals that men could partake in but also their Athenian wives back home and how they themselves were supporting the state albeit in a in a a different way and perhaps in a in a nameless way and um, something that isn't always recognized by, by what we see in the, the textbooks. When we have Xenophon telling us that women are better staying at home, like the, the busy bee at home and looking after the hive, that's not possible for all Athenian women when we consider how frequently that the Athenians were at war.
0: Why would historians like Xenophon and Thucydides have us believe otherwise?
1: I think they, they're talking about their own social realities, their own world that they belong to and what they see, but also trying to promote the this ideal onto their readers to a certain extent and to say, this is really what we should be, be driving for. But these are a select group of intellectuals. These are literate men who are at the top of their society, who are, who are writers, who are interested in, in, for whatever reason, putting down their opinions, whether it's for history with Thucydides, whether... Um, with Xenophon, whether he's writing his historical text, whether he's writing his philosophical text, whether he's writing um, about different things, they, they all have their own agenda. Um, they're all trying to uh, appeal to a certain readership as well. Um, so they're certainly not going to be talking or addressing the regular Joes on the street, but they're trying to share their ideas of what they think is incredibly important and their recommendations. So they're going to talk about what they're most familiar with and how um, their own realities look and to share those ideas with their peers, their contemporaries as well. Um, that's fine and it does give us an absolute... Um, it does give us a picture of, of what was going on um, for these men. Thucydides in his um, his funeral oration, the fact that he, he has Pericles say, you know, women are, are best um, not mentioned... Um, you're, you're better off not being spoken about. This is perhaps true, but it, it's a, it's a particular stance that's being put on this. This is not necessarily what was going on at the time. Um, and we always have to be aware of our source material and critical of their own agendas and their own bias as, as they might've had who they were writing for, what audience was going to, to buy into, into their message. So that 's incredibly important, and' something that we just have to be careful for with, um, to be careful for with regard to what we 're reading. For demosthenes he 's writing for a jury he 's trying to persuade a jury to reinstate his client. Um, he's, he, his argument wouldn 't have made sense if he wasn 't speaking the truth. you can 't appeal to a jury and say you 've seen all these women yourself without them being able to recognize this." Um, as being something that exists and something that's true. We see, again, I mean, there's glimpses of this with Aristophanes. Um, again, being mindful of, of what genre we're dealing with, Aristophanes writing comedy. Um, he certainly mentions women in the marketplace. Um, he's, he's talking about women being midwives and vegetable sellers, etc., etc. So, again, he his purpose is to get a laugh. It, it's not funny if it doesn't have some element of truth in it. I think that's an important part of comedy. Um, the danger is that with Aristophanes, unlike Demosthenes, he's, he's not writing for, um, he's not writing to, to give us a truth. He's not writing biography or history. Um, but Demosthenes has to, has to have a a believable case and a story to tell that his jury will follow along with. So there has to be something very, um, real to those jurors for them to buy into his client's argument and to vote for him in the end. So it's a, it's a, it's a nice thing to, to look at. I'm, I'm only sorry that Demosthenes doesn't give us more detail, um, but it certainly does give us an insight that isn't necessarily present elsewhere. Um, and when we do find snippets of, of material that help us, like in Aristophanes, again, we've just got to be mindful of the source material and the context with which it
0: was written. Interesting. Now, we said, well, I said we'd return to the death, which earlier um, there was this sort of romanticized image of him being a, a, a bastion of obstinate democracy until the grave. Um, now, others have suggested that his death is a bit of a symbol of the decline of Athenian democracy coming subsequent to his own personal exile. Would you comment on that?
1: Um, well, I'd say it's... it's no more of a decline um, than Socrates going to his death. Um, the way that we look at suicide and the way that we, we perceive that from a modern perspective is very different to how the ancients would. Um, even going back to the case of Ajax as well um, and the the world of the heroes. Suicide is a very different thing and it, it does mean something in terms of a person's character which isn't necessarily present in modern viewpoints. And that's, that's where we have to be again, wary of, of looking back on these with our own kind of modern glasses, looking um, back in the ancient world. Um, for Demosthenes, he, he had been exiled already from Athens um, during the Harpalus affair um, and he'd made a return. When he knows that kind of the Macedonians are coming and there's nothing to stop them, it's under um, Antipater's forces at this stage that he, he's fighting. He, he removes himself to the island of Paros um, and he takes sanctuary in the temple of Poseidon there. He, I think he, he's aware it's, it's over. There's nothing, there's nothing else to do, but he, he's not prepared to allow himself to be used as Macedonian propaganda. That is something that is is cut off. That's the bit that he's, he's not willing to allow them to either bring him back in chains, parade him around Athens, He's not willing to allow them to execute them. He wants to be in control himself. So to have the poison concealed within his pen, you know, he's, he's thought about this and he's given it some consideration as to what he wants to do. Some have seen it as, as being kind of, I suppose, cowardly or, or kind of walking away from the problem or, you know, there, there's different perspectives that you can take on this. But I think it was, from my personal point of view, I think it was incredibly brave of him to, to accept A defeat like this, because he is defeated, the Macedonians have won, in spite of his best efforts. But I think he knew that his legacy, or he hoped his legacy, would live on in some part, and taking his own life could have ensured that to make sure that that became part of the Demosthenes legend. Um, So as I said, in in the 280s BC, a statue is set up to Demosthenes, um, and the people do recognize that. He's he's dying for his cause. He's almost a martyr, um, to borrow that kind of Christian term. Um, he, I think it's a very calculated move on his part and something that will um, capture the hearts and the minds of the Athenian people, regardless of how popular he might have been at the time of his death. Uh, it's quite a bold and very dramatic move on his part. And to use, I mean, the instrument as well. I mean, that, that's part of the legend, the very pen with which he wrote his speeches. That's, that's a, a true Demosthenes move, if ever, I would kind of say. Um, that's, that's just incredibly poetic and dramatic, um, and certainly somebody who I've said I feel lived for his craft, lived for his profession, that was the way he, he chose to go, and that, that's very fitting in my um, viewpoint, that, that suits his character, his determined character, the, the boy who stood on the beach with a, an apparatus shouting at the waves, the boy who had pebbles in his mouth and tried to overcome his own list. This is somebody who did not back down from a challenge, but he knew at that stage that there was nothing left to fight for. They had won. And rather than be a tool for the opposition, he could become somebody who could be seen as a champion later for the Athenians. Unfortunately, he never banked on the Romans coming um, later on and being an even bigger threat. Um, But I think he really hoped that the democracy, as it had been, many times before could be restored, democracy would return to Athens in some form later on. And I think that's what he believed. And he would be one of the fighters for that. He would be seen as one of the forefathers of that
0: movement. And that's a remarkably, wonderfully poetic way to ensure his, well, almost kleos, I suppose, (laughs) Um, (laughs) as a a real person.
1: And I'm sure Uh, that that's there in his mindset, just thinking about that and thinking, you know, how can I do this? and really kind of ensure that my name lives on. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, that's wonderful. Well, there you have it. Demosthenes, uh, champion of democracy, a uh, great orator. Now, Dr. Kerry, if you on to the rather more trivial part of the podcast, <laughs> seeing as you've <laughs> mentioned Aristophanes earlier, do you have a favourite ancient Greek comedy?
1: Oh, I absolutely do. Um, frogs. <laughs> frogs is absolutely my favourite, and it's something that even now I will, I'll pick up my copy of it. Um, If it was closer to to me, I could, I could show you via the zoom screen, how battered my, my frogs copy is. Um, It's, it's just brilliant. Um, I'm a huge Aristophanes fan anyway. Um, But the frogs is just something that that still makes me giggle every time I pick it up. There's always that one liner, that zinger that's in there um, that I really love about um, that particular text. It's fantastic. Um, and it's it's an ambition of mine yet that I, I make it over to Greece, hopefully when the pandemic has subsided somewhat <laughs> um, to see a live performance. And I know that so many people out there go to see the tragedies um, and that that's really huge, but I would love to go and see um, a live performance of um, Aristophanes' comedies in particular, if I could, uh, The Frogs is, is my favorite. I love the, the, the zinginess of it and how fresh it still feels when you read it now. Um, The comments that he has within there, within that speech, the fact that he, sorry, not a speech, within that text, I'm still on Demosthenes most. (laughs) um, The comments that he has about politics and how to revive um, a state that suffered bad leadership, they're incredibly pertinent even to readers now. Um, how do we we solve the problem? What do we do? It's built into this framework of going down to the underworld to find a, a poet, a tragic poet to help. But the discussions that he has um, within the characters and the, the conversations that he has between Dionysus, Xanthius, Aeschylus, you know, it, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic read. Um, and it just feels as fresh as when he wrote it. It's still so um, important to modern readers as it was to the Athenian audience that he wrote it for Um, and that's what I I just love about it and then of course his 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 usual kind of slapstick humor and his his kind of crude jokes they're still funny they still make me laugh and when I teach it in, in a civilization course or even in Greek I'm laughing every time I'm reading it out and my students sometimes think I'm mad um, they don't see the humor yet because they're seeing it as something that they're being compelled to read perhaps. But I try to instill in them how, how incredibly, um, incredibly well crafted it is that he's giving his, his, his audience, an Athenian audience, a political message while at the same time wrapping it all up in, in a kind of funny um, coating to, to ease the, the, the pill he's giving them. Um, and it's just, it's brilliant. It's a combination of all the, the features that I love. It's got, the, it's got the important political message. It's got the social and cultural references. Um, and it has the, the humour then um, that truly Aristophanes can convey regardless of whatever he's writing. Um, he really was a master of, of getting people to laugh um, and to see, to see his message through this particular guise. And it's, it's just brilliant. Uh, give me Aristophanes any day over over reading Thucydides and his political message I'll happily take it
0: (laughs) I was going to say particularly apt choice given the parabasis in the middle of it
1: absolutely yeah it's just it's brilliant and I would encourage any of your listeners to go and, and give the the frogs another go and just to to see how how incredibly relevant it still is and how important you know what lessons our own politicians could learn from the frogs i'm sure we, we should set a, a drive going to send uk and irish politicians a copy of the frogs and maybe they, they might learn a thing or two
0: <laughs> and let us hope that we can uh, on reflection draw a parallel between uh, the way they turn to the arts in the hour of need and Absolutely. let's hope that sets a precedent for today. well thank you very much dr Kerry and it's been an absolute pleasure um Well, yeah. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure.
1: My pleasure. It's been a great uh, experience and one which I really enjoyed.
0: Likewise. Thank you very much.